welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. Today I'm going to be joined by Benita Roy. I've wanted to have Benita on the podcast for a long time because I think she's just a brilliant mind. And we're going to be exploring today what are these theories of change that we might hold at a societal level that we're swimming inside of that might then afford certain possibilities for transformation. In particular, we're going to be exploring this notion of complex adaptive systems and the the beauty of that theory, but perhaps the shadow side of that theory. And Benita will share with us instead her notion of complex potential states and how a theory like that can actually open up new realms of change, new types of change, non-linear change, might I say. And so I think it's really fascinating for us as coaches to be able to explore this kind of thinking. It's maybe zoomed out from the up-close minutiae of transformational coaching and looking at, at things from a collective systemic level. We will also dive into Benita's theory of transformational education and these different selves that can emerge in our lives. This is definitely a podcast to listen all the way through because I think we begin to close the circle, wrap things up well towards the end of the podcast. Benita Roy is a philosopher, a teacher, an educator. She's the founder of the Alador Insight Center and C-Labs and she's also an associate of Perspectiva. Before we dive in, I'd just like to whet your appetite that soon we'll be announcing our new online coach training called The Art of Developmental Coaching for those of you that are passionate about working with your clients developmentally. I'll be back to tell you more about that in the coming weeks. I'd love it if you would share this podcast. I'd just like to get the word out to as many coaches and transformational practitioners as possible. And if you want to join our mailing list or check out what we're up to in general, you can head to coachesrising.com. If you scroll down the homepage there, you'll see a sign-up box. You can join our ever-growing community of transformational coaches. All right, so that being said, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Benita Roy. Hey, Benita, it's good to be with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. You know, I was just thinking how much the world has changed since we, even since we last spoke. So um, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, that's actually great. You mentioned that because there was a few things you said last time we spoke that really, I was like, they stayed with me, you know, like you were bringing in this idea that the nature of change itself might be changing. I don't know if you remember, I think I might, I think I've yeah, yeah. Cr- ru- crudely paraphrased you there, but uh, so we might get into that. Um, and there's so much we can talk about today, but I, I, go, I guess I want to start by asking you about what we were just checking in about, which is, you know, you wrote um, in one of your emails about uh, replacing the obsession over decline and collapse with a concentration on transformation and potential, which I think for coaches listening would be, they would really resonate with that. But Perhaps you could say like why you wrote that statement and where it comes from. Yeah. So um, if you think about um, decline and collapse, those words. Um, so, So phenomenon happen, things happen. And then we add an evaluative filter. We evaluate that. And the way we evaluate that depends upon the mental models we hold. 
So if I say decline and collapse, that only makes sense in a mental model of a linear progression, right? Because there's progression. In order to think of regression, you have to have a concept of progression. And so um, when we speak of the decline of the West or the decline of an organization, it's always hidden in that is this little movie playing that progression follows a certain path that I had expected when I was on this step that maybe these next steps could have been possible. Those were in the, in the direction of progress. So the first thing to do is to notice that you impute onto your evaluation of what's happening a measuring tape that has certain you know, values or certain expectations you're measuring by. So there's this great scene in the movie, the new season of Billions, if you watch it, where um, he goes into the, you know, the coach, she's this really hot, very sophisticated business psyop psy person, you know? And he says, he's stuck in a conundrum. And she says, what if you, what if, you don't increase profits because he's trying to do two things at the same time and they're incompatible. And it never occurs to him to allow his profits to dr drop because that might be in the right direction because of the mental model he has their hedge funders. I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to him, but then all of a sudden something clicks and he sees it. He sees that that's the nonlinear path. He sees the potential just at that moment, the whole the whole view switches. So the first thing we have to understand and, and try to understand is what measuring stick am I using? What are the values along those measuring sticks? We need to examine, examine those. And what are the potentials to um, reimagine um, what, a what I would just call a preferred future would be? So I'm not gonna even use a better situation or a worse situation, you know, what is a, could I imagine a constellation of preferred futures? So, um, and there's a lot of hidden opportunity in that. If you've run businesses that have gone through cycles, it's really exciting when you're expanding and scaling and making more money, but also, you know, you have cash flow problems and receivables and hiring is hard. And then when you're contracting and there's a local contraction, if you fixate on those metrics, you'll only, first of all, you'll be out of sync with the macroeconomic, let's say factors or conditions, but you will fail to um, appreciate and leverage and uh, play with the fact that, oh, I don't have a hiring problem. Oh, I can spend more time. Uh, uh, we could slow down. We could spend more time with work-life balance. Uh, we, could we could throw out that whole line and re regenerate some of our interests. You know, these are the things you miss if you can't switch your measuring tape and and I'll just and I'll let you comment and, and build on this um it, I you know during during covid I started watching a lot of chess <laughs> you know I would I would work and 
and watch chess. And of course, chess is hard. You know, they, it's like 12 hours and I don't really understand chess that well. But um, uh, I do have some favorite players. So I was into who won and who didn't won. But what was interesting is some of the... Um, what I noticed, it was also said that the best chess players, they have strategies, but when, when let's say they want to start with this opening move, I don't know, the Catlin, they have all these, these terms, but then as they look and they're moving, all of a sudden they'll see, ah, this is not like that setup. This is like that setup. And they instantly move into that structure. And then, and the best chess players are the ones who, even though they're pursuing one strategy, it's a mental model, they're very open to, oh, I see this pattern. I know this pattern. It has more advantage if I think it of it within this mental model. So there's something like that that is operating in, in, in that statement I wrote to you. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's quite, you know, in particular circles now, particularly online, you know, there is, there's, you know, maybe in the mainstream media too, this idea of decline and the coming um, uh, environmental crises as well. But I'm just, I'm just, so in a, in a sense, like you might be pointing at like a meta um, idea of change itself, you know, like what are the, the meta narratives we hold and um, what does that then allow for occurring what does it allow for us that we're able to see? So I'm just, I guess my question is like, I'm wondering what, um, what, what model do we want to be putting down perhaps? And what, which ones do we want to be picking up instead that would allow for concentration on transformation and potential? Like, is it that in itself or like, are there, is there more nuance to like what we can say about the kinds of paradigms that we might be holding that we need to put down and the ones we need to pick up? Yeah, so um, one of the things, you know, I know you want to talk about this, but I'm going to run through quite quickly because I want to get to some other um, candy. <laughs> There's more candy. Um, so one of the things I've written about, it was in the Metamodern book, Dispatches from a Time Between Worlds, is that um, one of the overarching mental models we have of change, well, we have two mental models of change. One is developmental which means that the next higher stage builds on the previous stage. And so you have to be two feet before you're three feet. You have to be three feet before you're four feet. Um, this is a, an aspect of change, but it's somewhat trivial. And then we have developmental models that say cultures and organizations are like this, like the meta-modern, that their cultures go through stages, developmental stages, which because it's a developmental theory assumes that it has to reach this stage in order to get to the next stage. And this stage, the next higher stage is gonna be built on this stage. So those are called stage theories. So that's one uh, theory of change that we have. The other theory of change we have is evolution, but generally that has turned into um, and, and it, there's a whole discussion of whether or not it's original Darwinism or neo-Darwinism or Darwinianism. But basically, when people think of evolution, they think about complex, uh, complex adaptive uh, 
systems and complex adaptive systems, which is all over organizational science, resilience and adaptivity and complex states and how do you adapt, how do you adapt? Um, this, this mental model is highly suspect because um, epis, it, it, it guarantees epistemic closure. So what do I mean by that? Complex adaptive systems are like, um, uh, bacteria and antibiotics and pests and pesticides and nuclear war and nuclear defense. And when you get into the logics of complex adaptive systems, eventually the system closes on itself because everyone is adapting to everything is adapting to everything else. And even though the system is enclosing or imploding because so many of those movements are everyone's adapting to everyone else. It, the system feels like it's heating up and getting more complex. It's getting more complex, but it's not expanding, right? So if you think about financial markets, like we don't produce anything, but hedge funds now start to shore and then they produce another financial instrument to adapt to that and blah, 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 blah. So as long as we're so it's as long as we look at systems and systems change through the lens of complex adaptive systems, I think we produce the world we're in now. And that is escalating complexity and escalating risk and epistemic closure. So this one's very hard to get out of because, and I spent about now 12 years, like with, I started with gardening. Like what, you know, you put all this effort into gardens and then the pests come and, and you say, no, um, what if I, why are the pests here? What if I see there's a potential that is, is in the fact that the pests have arrived? And, and it gets very, very hard because your mind, the, you know, then I want to adapt to, I, I'm still thinking of adapting to the pests, but I don't want this this loop to be my epistemic lens of change. And so I have to say that, um, you know, recently I wrote about complex potential states. I'm starting to really exit uh, complex adaptive thinking, but it's a real discipline and it takes, it takes a long time. And um, I don't want, you know, I could tell you a lot of gardening how, but I don't want to get into the specific experiments I run. But like I tell managers, like, don't strategize your employees because because they're they're complex adaptive systems, too, you know. And so um, so I think that's on the threshold of a, a, a real transformational, real transformance in um, in. Um, consciousness, let's say, um, and I wrote, I've been writing about complex potential states, not because it's necessarily the thing, although I see the seeds of it in a lot of um, established writers like Christopher Alexander, Whitehead, uh, Simone Den, you know, a lot of people have been sniffing around um, and, and some physics, a lot of people, uh, Stuart Kaufman, let's say, a lot of people have been sniffing around this. It's in our imagination. Um, but I've, I've been writing about it because it's one thing to tell people don't use the lens of complex adaptive systems thinking, but 
it's another thing. To, it's, you know, what, what are you going to replace it with, you know? Because do you mind if I ask before we talk about complex potential states, like to help me get a sense of like how I might be thinking inside of um, that, that paradigm of complex adaptive systems. Like it sounds like you're saying that there, there are these a- agents um, within the system that are all adapting to each other. And you said that it's not expanding. So I imagine therefore within whatever that part, you know, within the, the boundaries, it's all getting increasingly complex and there's like sh- struggles taking place, pressure. I'm just, but I'm just wondering yeah, for everybody listening, like how that might look on an everyday level. Is it something? Is it something that we're all the water we're all swimming in continuously, or is it is it something that's showing up in particular places like the workplace? If you're if you're a you know executive, for example, and and if it is showing up everywhere, like how how are we? Yeah, could you point us to like how how it might be residing in the very way we see the world? If that's possible, it might be. A, yeah, a I ask, mean, I, I'll first I'll reiterate it's it's the feeling of you know kicking the can down the road. If I spray pesticides, the pests are just going to be more resilient, which means I have to create more pesticides, which means so that's the feeling. Now um, I can give you some examples. Um, for example, you, you know when I left my career at at the last recession, the depression, um, I started, I started my own businesses and different initiatives. And for a while, I was always felt under threat, like, oh, someone's, you know, when you're on the internet, someone's doing more than that, or I've got to out compete, I got to be there more, I've got to write more. And when I started doing complex adaptive, uh, isolating that kind of thinking, I would sit down every day and, and just, what, how can I add value to, to what I do? And sometimes I draw something, sometimes I read a little bit. If every day I add value, then it's going to create potentials. And sure enough, I'll get a call and I'm like, oh yeah, I have something like that, you know? And, and so I'm not really adapting to anything. The, the first um, presentation I did on complex uh, potential states was at three three years ago, four years ago, who knows, at Dave Snowden's Whistler Retreat, uh, uh, Kenefin Retreat in Whistler, uh, British Columbia. And uh, the presentation was, you know, I said something like 10 years ago when I left my career during the recession, um, uh, I would ha- I wake up the night and I'd have these panic attacks because my whole life, my whole career, my whole life buying the farm, I had this plan, you know, this is like this plan and the ducks in a row. And because they were big plans, they were two or three years and I was making more money every year and growing a business. And, and then I left and, and I would look into the future and there'd be nothing. You know, we bought the farm just two years before the recession. And so we had a lot of debt. And literally, I had this experience of looking in the future and seeing nothing. No, no, there was nothing, no place I was standing on today that would lead to the next. So not like a developmental pathway. And so I'm standing in front of uh, this retreat of very interesting, important people. And I'm saying, 
Now, how did I go from there to being talking to you and doing this presentation with two other keynote speakers? Like, how did how did that happen? And so I didn't want to tell a story of putting ducks in order because that's exactly the story that leads you to think there were steps when there were not steps. And so um, um, I don't want to do that pr presentation, but that's how this question of of complex potential states was lived in my life. Like how I wasn't adapting to anything. I mean, um, I didn't, uh, I, you know, there was a housing program where I refinanced without having to have a lot of equity in my home. That was the only thing I think I did. Half the time I just told people I couldn't pay and, and um, I didn't try to work on the things that weren't working. Mostly because I had the advantage of not being a, I didn't have anything to work on them with. So I was kind of like free falling. If I was somehow less free falling, I would have done that. If I had seen any potential in trying to leverage this, and I couldn't get a job. There were no jobs here. I was at the top of my career. I, I was in that demographic that was seen as overqualified. Um, so um, so that's the lived, lived experience that I had that started to um, open for me a front of thinking of, of a different way of experiencing change, of experiencing possibility and potential. And, um, you know, I got really curious about it from a speculative theory sort of way. You know, I, I've known that a lot of great uh Transformations in world building have come from philosophers who do speculative theory. So, of course, the theory of complex potential states is, is kind of speculative theory unless somebody adopts it to some kind of empirical research. So that's how it started. And just to give people an example, you know, I just want to make it real for people because it was very real for me. You know, it was very real for me. Um, so in terms of everyday uh organization, it's like, um, uh, you know, I can see some of the seeds into it, like when I was running my company, and let's say a very valuable player, uh, employer, employee comes up. And, you know, here it is the yearly review, they're going to hit you up for a raise. There's this like, I do something, and then they do something and the next year, they're going to ask for more, or they're wondering where, you know, and so how do you not get into that game? of um, where everybody's strategizing. This is like horrible if you're, um, and there's different, there's different uh, um, ways to do that in, in this one exper experience. Um, this was a very talented manager. He ran the whole um, nursery and home operations where we stored all the construction material and the nursery material. And we worked for people like Oscar De Laurenta and Scott Rudin and Henry Kissinger, who ran big estates. And they were always trying to steal him because they would want him to run their estate, right? Um, so every year there was this pickle because he'd have these, he'd have these offers from these famous people. And um, uh, so there was this game going on. And um, and so 
he he was Ecuadorian, and many of the many of the people that he oversaw or managed, not all, were also Latino. And one of the things that was complex was that when we first started, if he got a raise, then everybody else uh, assumed they should get the same raise because of the kind of familial relationships they had. And so when this thing kind of like started getting out of hand, I just said. Wilmer, this is my budget. This is how much I can increase the operations with. You divide it up. You have more insight into who's worthy and who's not. And I said, and if you take it all, that's fine with me. If you take it all for yourself, that's fine with me. And so now you see this was, it was, this was, I was just allowing the system to find its balance without meddling um mm. so that's that's uh that's just a specific example you know one of the things that we have in you, you know one of the things i'm working on that's in my new um initiative are things we call them concentrator codes what they are action protocols uh that are like little templates for doing things just like that like what is what what how could I, what is the abstraction? What is the protocol I used uh, to make that move? Um, so there, so that's, that's not as, you know, there's, it's not as easy to take a mm. tool out of a toolkit. Um, but, but um, hopefully if there's enough of these stories around these kinds of alternatives that people have taken, um, there could be a transformation in, let's say, organizational science. You know, um, mm. right now uh, we look at we look at different types of action logics in in um, that are at play in organizations right now. And so there's, for example, there's, and then I'll stop soon. There's a, um, a collaborative competition is healthy. So collaborative competition is. Um, you and I are playing chess or any kind of sport, but um, we're actually playing for the love of the game. And if you get better and beat me, then I get better and beat you and the game evolves. So it's called collaborative co competition. Um, curiously, people are allergic to that, which is unfortunate, like the postmoderns are allergic to collaborative competition. But what the action logics that's most used that results from complex adaptive systems thinking is what I call leverage conflict. So leverage conflict is like what we have in our financial institutions. Like I can bet on something and short it at the same time. So I have, I have leverage conflict or it's like when um, it's like when in these great movies like The Sopranos and Billions is when I'm, or suits, when I'm up against you, there's a competition, I go behind your back and see what I can blackmail you with. So not only do I win, but you get pushed back. So um, there's, there's more extreme forms of this, but almost every, uh, almost all the strategic uh, action logics in formal organizations operate on this leveraged leveraged conflict. And you see the world is, is like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, and let me just 
start, start. I get, I'm going to give you now a concrete example. I do in my workshops. So what is leveraged conflict look like? So we do this little experiment, this little game uh, where you have a little world and in this world, someone sells baskets of eggs and someone sells mangoes and someone sells fish, okay? And in this world, um, one fish can buy one basket of eggs, one basket of eggs can buy one mango, one mango can buy one fish and vice, it's all balanced out. This is what you start and you take people, you put them in threes. And someone says, okay, I'm the, I'm going to be the egg person. Someone wants to be the fish person and someone wants to be the mango person. So you start like that and you have, I do it on, online. And then you put up the next slide and you see that the egg lady, one of the seeds that of the mangoes, she's got, now she's got a mango tree. And then you say, okay, and then you you know and you have people talk about how they feel and the person with the that sells mangoes automatically feels threatened right because now it's something weird happens the fact that they have more mangoes than ever before devalues mangoes this is this is because the the economy is in a is in relation of leveraged conflict right so then in the next slide you see the, you know, they're not very smart people. They're just little world people. And the next slide, one of the eggs that the mango person bought got, you know, got warmed and became a chicken and it's a hen. Okay, so now you have the chicken person as a mango, the mango person has got a hens, chickens that lay eggs. And you say to the fish person, how are you feeling? And the fish person's like, I'm feeling like I got a lot of power, right? And now you see, okay, what is it about this world that the production of more wealth and richness devalues them? And now the fish person has more power. There's something extremely fucked up about this world. And this is because we are automatic go-to way of looking at value exchange is, is through the lens of uh, uh, leveraged conflict. Um, so when you play games like this, like to me, that's the kind of transformation that has to happen in this system at the level of understanding um, what kind of subjectivities have been produced by the world that we've been living in and, and understanding that there is a potential as that world fades away, that it's a good thing because these subjectivities are not necessarily, certainly they're not universal subjectivities. And um, maybe there's a lot of other potential in the human condition that can be, um, can emerge. And so, so that's kind of like the work we've been doing in the last yeah. two, two years. So, so uh, yeah, there's a lot in what you shared there. And uh, I kind of get the sense of how there's like, recognizing the system the systems and its heuristics or you know axioms or principles that you're embedded within and then uh seeing what the outcome of that is you know like how, and and i guess taking into account like how well are we thriving or how well do we feel in this system is it is it creating human flourishing and you're saying like these complex adapt 
adaptive systems thinking that's so prevalent is actually uh, has real issues with it. You know, it's it's uh, it's creating stress and competition and and scarcity or struggle perhaps. And yeah, so that, it's creating yeah. leveraged conflict, not right. collaborative competition. So that's one thing. But I I I, I realized what I could say to wrap this up. So yeah. when you run that little experiment of the three the three markets, right? The, the the three worlds with the fish and the um, people start to have very generative conf, conf, conversations. Like one person says, well, why don't we license it so you can't sell mangoes? Well, now you understand why we license thing and, and that's a scarcity and why they had guilds in the middle ages. And one person says, you know, or you understand why you pay farmers not to grow crops. You know, you start to understand these things that are look like perverse incentives. They are perverse incentives, but within the system, this is. And then people start to get very, very clever, like the mango person and the chicken person can create a coalition like the EU. And then and so this is what's happening is the system starts to get very complex because of all these creative ways people can keep balancing and rebalancing it, you know? Like what if the fish person went out and got a goat and all this stuff can happen. But the point of this is not that there are, but the point is, is from that lens, the thing gets really complex. The point is, why is the mango person under threat in the first place? Why is so? Because the subjectivity is, you know, the 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 assumptions of what human relation and transaction. The subjectivity itself has a bias, you know. So when I told this story to my class yesterday, this one woman said she worked. She that's how she went to this place where it was more like a communal thing in New Mexico. And she said, you know, basically, if you don't, the, the reason why it puts people in a pickle is because I say one fish is worth one basket is worth. So you have this, if, if you tokenize the value of transactional exchange, you'll, you get this subjectivity. So the question is, you know, if families don't do this, you know, if somebody made more, you know, made bread and you, you, you fix the car, you don't then go and take a little ledger. Well, you know, fixing the car is equal to two. You don't do that. You don't tokenize, uh, you don't tokenize value creation. And so what is an org, what is an economy? What is a society? What is an organization that doesn't tokenize value creation is another question that will bring you away from the path of leveraged conflict toward and in complex adaptive system toward some of these some of these other ways of uh, imagining reality. Because yeah, that's what I'd like to ask you about now is um, what what is on a like individual and collective level, how might we need to be transformed in order to uh, start to operate in that way collaboratively, um, you know, um, enacting or manifesting these fields of potential or, or, you know, artifacts or whatever it is that comes out of these fields of potential. Um, and it, and so I'm wondering, like, what is the shift we need to go through? Um, what are the ways we need to change our thinking? And this may be like where 
the idea of like linear incremental change those ideas we hold might need to be put down you know it might be that we open up the potential for exponential change or you know the sudden emergence of whole new realms of of value and value exchange so i'm just yeah curious if we could speak into that whole side now because i think like you know coaches listening some of them work with um organizations uh a lot of them work with um individuals in organizations and you know everybody's struggling right now and so yeah i think people are really keen to hear like how how could we what could we start to do what inquiries could we start to have that could help us open up and and kind of grow beyond the rules and the systems we're immersed yeah. in so um you know i know this brings us to i know you saw my uh you know for selves transformational education we have to rethink education because when we talk about let's say moving to complex potential states thinking or these things we're, we're kind of like at the stage where Kant is uh describing these things and we want to get to the stage where people are just enacting those things by default right so when you first look at it it sounds hope like you have to have all this metacognitive sophistication to make the move but the question is how do we enact from this so people moving through the system then they we produce a different type of subjectivity right, right. because yeah so this is for the listeners just to know that when we talk about this at the beginning, it's like Kant seeing a new mind and, 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 and identifying its features. But the hope is that it's just previewing things that are emerging already, um, that eventually we have the kind of subjectivity that doesn't have to work against our instincts to enact these types of behaviors. So that's very important that because if we don't keep that in mind, we become more like a, you know meta. Too much of a, a you know you go into meta paradigmatic. You you and then you start working in high projects and all this thinking in that direction doesn't 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 get you like. It has to be enacted. You have to have a, a, a theory, say, a theory of transformational education or a theory of the self so that, that you can uh, work on um, this from not a, a, meta, a meta level. So right. ha having said that, that's, I think, what you're asking. This is basically what you're asking. Well, let me just check. So you're saying, like, in a way, like, it would be ubiquitous in society, you know, in a sense that we wouldn't have to think about it uh it would we would just be like that you know we would be in systems that encourage that kind of way of being inside of us and you know from young ages people would grow up in that system and therefore it wouldn't be like a struggle to keep taking a meta perspective you know exactly. abstracting out you would just be doing it exactly yeah. And so did the same way that the sense of threat arises in the mango person when another person has a mango it arises effortlessly, and now it's difficult. You have to be a metacognitive thinker to notice and try to dissect it. What we want is the new subjectivity to arise automatically and work for us as long as it works for us. I'm not sure the process is ever, you know, That's ever ending. Ever ending. So, how, how um, do we get there? Because yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> I want to be in that place. That sounds great. You know, it sounds. 
like you know infinite game type i don't know you know place where we all collaborate and you know how do we get there like so um so along this path of my work the the answer how we get there is a is a question of education and um and again it's it's we need a new we can't use the same theories of change that are problematic to look at how the human changes right so if you look at theories of development then it's it's two stage like um and so um so the the question is what is a like People call it a metapsychology, and so this is the—if this is a four-legged stool, this is the fourth leg of the stool, and that is um, what we've already talked about—is like the production of a subjectivity and kind of like the marketplace. Um, and uh, in, in, in terms of the my metapsychology, I say that the problem with this is stereotyping. Really good developmental theorists will nuance this. But their model still is a line. Whether you nu- nuance it and say, well, you have to go back and regress and all this. It does, it, so what, our model shouldn't have to be so nuanced that it no longer says what it says, right? So in developmental theory, uh, we start with what you might call uh, core psychological schemas, um, which are, are, you know, this very early on in childhood, up to 18 months to two years old, where you have to distinguish self, other, and world. Um, and you have to, you know, understand your sensory motor system. And that happens up to about three years old, if you know the Montessori system. Up to three years old, children won't play with other children because they don't have the next level, which I call the communal self. Um, and it's it's horrible for all uh, un, all all parents who are unaware because you think your child is going to be a sociopath because they don't play with other children, but it's just a, it's a it's a, a a phase or a stage. Okay, so then we in in our educational system when we go to school by the time we're in school we we pretty much think that that stage the the development of the self other world is over. And so we start teaching um, to different, a different, to we start teaching the next stage. And in reality, those primary schemas need to develop or change or um, or transform throughout the whole lifespan. But we 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 think the six-year-old child coming first grade, that's over with. He can see, he can hear, he can move his body. He knows how to move objects and, you know, he knows that he's a self and there's other people, but this, and then we move on. So now we, that's done. Now we get to the next stage. Just like two, I'm two feet tall, that's done. Now I'm going to grow further. But this is not true. The transformations in the core self happen across the lifespan. So the first time you have like a sexual experience with someone you really, um, um, meld melt with you're like what is self what is other the first time you realize your parents header in your mind in your belief system what is self what is other this what is self other and what is world and so then you go in and you start in 
post to, to wonder what is the world is it in me or I am in the world and then these then and then you might have experiences where these these boundaries are not so solid and and they're porous and then they move on to other things and we don't have an educational system that tracks the core self's change over the lifespan what the way we do it is if you have trouble and you have a poor situation, we pathologize it and you go to the psychiatrist, right? Or um, as these things change, like I get a lot of students that are 40 and 50 years old, they go into a, a program on transpersonal psychology or they, 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 they have to, but see, the problem is they're at a crisis in their life because there's been no bridge all the way along. You know, and they start to like deconstruct their ego and all this stuff because the the there's been a gap between the support of of that core self. So one of the things uh, from an educational point of view is that um, instead of a step like thing, we have a foundation which are the primary schema, and 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 that. And that goes through transformations of the lifetime. And then the next level of the self is the communal self. So the first, uh, the first example, the communal self is my family. I'm in a group. Okay. And the communal self also goes through transformations across the lifespan. But in order for that to happen, it, it, it both problematizes the primary structures and provides a scaffold for it to solve its problems so the communal self can grow. Now, what, what do you mean by that? Sorry, like the, you mean that if the core self is well developed, it will support the communal self and if the, and then the communal self will then feed back into the core self? Yes, because as the communal self starts to expand, like how large is your we? Am I, am I for Ukraine or am I for Russia? Okay, this is a question of how large is your we? And as that happens, it'll put pressure or it'll, it's a catalyst for the core self. Well, who is self other in world? And, it, and so then I have to go back down. I'll find that I have some work to do here. And then the communal self can grow into a larger we. Right. So they both support each other and the, the, uh, the, the, the the need or the arrows or the the dynamism that the that the communal self needs to grow then sometimes puts it it, it, it has to catalyzes new growth in the core self so they so this not a step stage uh model okay so and then above the core self above is only because some are more foundational. We, uh, we have what's called the cosmopolitan self, which is, um, you know, like the metamodern self, the one integrated neoliberal, basically um, urbanized um, uh, nation state system or something. And the cosmopolitan self, um, this is coming from a Western, very Western uh, uh, model, but that's like the metamodern self up in the sky is this cosmopolitan self. But the cosmopolitan self actually 
that's a production of subjectivity. The cosmopolitan self is the self that is threatened when the neighbor has a mango because it's tied into the production of subjectivity in Western thinking. Um, the problem with that, so we want a production of subjectivity, but the cosmopolitan self, I think, is highly problematic. And I don't, I think it's 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 not the place to go. It's 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 a um, pathological uh, or um, uh, goal because it parasitizes the communal. And so this is exactly what the mango game shows. Nobody says, well, can we be, a, you know, they don't look at it as a communal. And so for example, you have, um, um, you see this in the US, you know, there's a move toward rural family and, commun and communal living. Uh, we need to reboot the communal self because we go from some kind of uh, um, retarded core self to the cosmopolitan self in our culture. And we don't spend a lot of time, uh, we, we've basically gutted the communal self. And so you see when people try to start communes or live co-housing, we don't know how to do that. You can't just all of a sudden um, put these architecture in place for people to live together because you have to revisit the, you have to increase the capacity of the core self, you have to reestablish them the communal self, you have to support and grow the communal self. And then the question is what kind of collective, larger collective subjectivity can be produced on top of that, that's not cosmopolitanism and doesn't parasitize but has this generative interaction with the other layers. And I'll just bring this home. Uh, um, one of my friends, where I was talk, working with my class yesterday and this one woman said, she lives in Australia and they have a commons area like places the kids can play and you can have large parties. Some of the built, so the architecture is like co-housing. Hmm. She's, but she's from Brazil and she grew up with very strong communal extended family, aunts and uncles, and then uh, professional affiliations. And when you had parties, there was a lot of family and associates and colleagues. But her husband is British and he grew up in a nuclear family. And when he goes to see her families, he's like, wow, they're all nice. And of course, he just feels the communal spirit. Now, and she said, look, it's not easy to have that many relations. There's always a lot of like, you know, this one got divorced and is sleeping with this. You know, this is communal life is alive like that. But my, but, but she said, but, you know, he had his family and he was like out of there. And now he's like, he became like an urban professional. And I said, okay, well, this is very interesting because was the same with my family. We had a very small nuclear family and it was strangling. It was like, it, that's, it's like once you graduate, you're out of there because we think communal phase in our life is the family and the family itself is not embedded in larger communal systems. This is what I'm saying. We've gutted the communal mm -hmm. self. And so, yes, his experience is authentic, that the family is like, I'm so out of here because it's just, it, it's also retarded. 
it hasn't been developed. And so then you just become a cosmopolitan self and you haven't had the experience of uh, the, the increasing capacity of the communal self. And so this is why the way it's structured today, that cosmopolitan move parasitizes the parochial because most of us, our parochial communal self was just our family and, and, and it is, it's not, it's, it's, it's strangling. So, so that experience is real, but from this wider perspective, you can see, um, yeah, you can see how the, how the model works. Uh, I've got a lot of questions and some reflections that come up. Uh, one is like, how uh, this journey you're describing um, fits with this question of um, how can we move into this new worldview, you know, of like um, seeing complex, you know, and manifesting potential, basically. Um, and if there is, um, you know, you mentioned like the core self, the communal self, the cosmopolitan self, is it sounds like what's curious to me is like the core self and the communal self both sound like um what would be the word like they're just aspects of us but the cosmopolitan self sounds pathological so i'm i'm wondering if there's like a non-pathological like mode of that you know like or a potent you know a, um because it sounds like you're describing how the the, the cosmopolitan self is part of this complex adapt adaptive system mode and I'm wondering what like the self that was in the other mode, the complex potential states mode might be like. And, and just uh, before you answer that, a reflection I've got is like, yeah, I'm thinking about I've got a young family. And then I'm thinking um, uh, there seems to be a lot of people around my age who are wanting to live in community more, feeling that urge. Because I'm, you know, on the one hand, I see like, yeah, I'm, I, like I have to get childcare because I want to do my job. So like, um, I've got my job, which I do like, but then I have to get money to pay for the childcare. So, you know, then you get in that kind of buy-in there of like, um, um, you're kind of privatizing all these different aspects of your life. And so therefore, and then you've got a mortgage and you, and then you, so then you want to like, then you've got like the weekend to go out and maybe do some things. But uh, I guess what I'm pointing at is it's like, there's some good things. That I, I love that, but there's also this sense of like being caught inside that system, perhaps where mm -hmm. everything is is kind of um, commoditized and chopped up, and it's kind of complex. And you're in the struggle. You know, it's like oh, we have to earn more money to pay for more daycare, but then you know, like oh, actually, if I just took the time off and look for my daughter, then I wouldn't need the money. And I love doing that. So. You know, these are some of these internal struggles, and then and then there's this maybe idealistic idea of like uh, community living, where where there would be distributed parenting, for example, and and like these meaningful more uh, more abundance of these meaningful moments where that I've had throughout my life, where I've been in community, you know, around a shared common goal, and that's just been incredibly meaningful and fun and. It's not that I don't have that anymore, but it's like, oh, I could be more of that in life, you know, and maybe that points to how there could be this transition where we find meaning and, and, and uh, collaborative 
relationships that create value and artifacts in the world. So, so yeah, I get, but my questions are like, yeah, how, how does that, is there a, like a, a version of the community, the cosmopolitan self, which is maybe a, like a version of like, that lives inside of not the adaptive system stuff, but inside of the complex potential states mm-hmm. that, that can, yeah. And, yeah. and how that fits to like this whole idea. Yeah. This, yeah. Anyway, you got it. You got it. Yeah, I'll, there's I'll a lot there. There. <laughs> That's because I, the, the way I described it, there is a confusion in there. So we have the core self and the communal self. They're, they're very deep structures. And then it seems that human potential, there's, another kind of thing that that has the potential to emerge. And so what I call that is what kind of subjectivity, so depending upon what the the capacity of the core self and the communal self, depending upon their capacities, they engage world building activities and that those choices produce subjectivity. For those choices, in the larger system produce a certain kind of subjectivity. When you say subjectivity, you mean like a certain kind of inner, you know, experience of being in the world, basically. Well, like, like what you just described. And then of course I have to wear, pay my mortgage and this and that. So, so it produces a certain kind of subjectivity. Right. It, it, all the, you know, um, the act, the threshold for action is in one direction and not others, or the subjectivity where the mango person feels threatened. So I don't call, I even call it the cosmopolitan self. I, I probably did, but the cosmopolitanism is a certain kind of subjectivity. And so the question, your question we're asking is, and what you're rightly seeing is that um, there is we're not going to go back and be like local isolated communities, just the communal self, distributed communal selves. There's problems with that because when these communal selves bump up against each other, there's in-groups and out-groups, there, needs, there, there seems to be, it's already emergent, this other layer, which is the production of subjectivity. So Marx, for example, talked about capitalism produces a certain kind of subjectivity. So yes, there is something superordinate to the core self and the communal self that is already in the potential of the human of the human. And right now it produces the subjectivity we call the cosmopolitan self. And the question you're asking, which is fascinating, is what kind of subjectivity can be produced? But my answer to that is you, we can't get outside of the production of subjectivity to produce a new subject. It emerges from the work we'll do at the core and communal level. Mm. And then a new type of subjectivity emerges. So we don't have a lot of control over that because it comes from our world building activities which depend upon the capacities built at these fundamental levels. So, so all the work is in the, 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 the core and the communal self. And then of course, we're aware of new potentials, new subjectivities that may be arising, but it's not like we can get outside. Like yeah. that's what Marx 
tried to do, get outside and produce a new subjectivity called the proletarian communism. It's, it, you can't do that. Because, yeah. Because, yeah. So, so well, if I get that right, what you're saying is we, we go back and do transformative work with the core self and the communal self and then the new self is an emergent property of that. You know, it's exactly. like you can't you can't just from here determine what it is. It has to have a kind of requisite emergence to it. You know that it, it's yeah, it's emerging out of that. And th- therefore, I'm like, and where are we in that process? You know, like, are we? Um, is it? Are we still like we've got to go back and do this work with the core self, communal self, and we? You know, we're nowhere near collectively doing that or do you feel like you know this massive um sort of explosion of interest in in mindfulness and meditation and yoga and self-help and trauma understanding do you think that is part of people actually going back to do that work and uh, yeah actually there we might even see the seeds of that new self emerging already yeah so we are all this is already happening just like when Kant was naming this, these, these, this change was already underway. And, you know, if you're someone like myself and you're doing speculative philosophy, um, you're, it's, not, it's not the same as creating a fantasy novel. You're looking and you're seeing, oh, this is new. This is interesting. This is metamodern. Ah, that's, that's the old thing. You're looking for some pattern that is in emerging authors that are saying things different and that seemed to be a constellation that is is, uh, increasingly amplifying itself. So yeah, you see like, you know, the Tao and people trying to create communities out of nowhere. There's a a need, but then, um, so I look at that, that's a need in the system and, and, you understand why people escape their families because it's a very parochial, but, but there's, you know, so, so it is speculative philosophy, but it's, it's an inquiry into the nature of phenomenon that are, um, that are emerging and trying to make sense out of that and, um, and being very vigilant that, um, that, that the, the activity is radical enough so that you move, you realize that this theory of change is not working and then you realize that you might work with that and then you realize you have to, you can't assume that the developmental model of the human is right and then this, so it's, it's a, I wouldn't say it's an empirical exercise but it's not a fantasy novel. So um, if you, and the other thing is that when I like talk to John Verveke or some other people who are doing this work, we have different models and heuristics and we have to do semantic mapping because what I call this, he calls this. Right. Um, but because there's a lot of resonance, um, you that gives you reason to believe that, that people doing speculative philosophy are looking at the same world and just making um, reasonable analysis of that same world so that this gives you reason to believe that this is happening in the world and not just made up in your head. So yes, it's already happening. If, if you're doing this right, it's because 
um, you're just amplifying or highlighting or trying to scaffold um, the potential that's already in the system. And, and of course it's ref reflective of its own theory so that you're working with complex potential states that are already in the system. And by using heuristics, by writing a model, like I just said, you amplify these potentials. So you see, for example, again, I use an example from my class yesterday, some that conversation about the Brazilian, like this was already in her experience and now it makes sense. And she said that, you know, um, and, and one of the things that, she's been intuitively advocating for is that they have a they they do activities so kids come together to do their activities because right now kids play with other kids that, that are like them and so she sees this as a limitation right and so in a communal a real community uh, when you had like a bunch of blue collar workers, you'd go to work in the factory, there'd be an Irishman and Italian and, and you'd have to work with people you didn't like, you know? So she says, well, let's do something so the kids have to play with kids they don't like. So this is, this is, that's her intuition. And now she has this model that of the communal self that, that reaffirms that her instincts, like they, some of the, People there think she's batshit crazy. Um, so, so the potential is already in the system and some of this, like your work, having conferences, talking about it, um, noticing that other people are seeing the same thing even though your semantics are different. Um, this all amplifies them and creates this, the, the potential state um, starts to catalyze. It's like the a lake turning over. When it happens, it'll happen all at once. People mm -hmm. will just see that, like you can hardly think like that anymore. Like you can't. You'd have. You need effort to think of yourself as being under threat because your neighbor has more eggs than you do. It, it will be hard to think that way. I think that's incredibly inspiring because maybe we get circle back now to where we started, which was like replacing obsession over decline and collapse with a concentration on, uh, on transformation and potential, you know, that, uh, maybe I'm, I'm, I, as you speak, I get quite, the, the, the internet comes into mind, you know, of like the, 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 how that's so amplified the amount of, um, connections that are possible now, the spread of ideas and, um, that, yeah, if you, yeah, I just feel that it's some, it's quite easy to get caught in that linear notion of change where if I just look at the world and the environment and the war and the economic, you know, it just starts to feel like it's impossible, you know, but then, um, when you talk, I think of the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, you know, how that just fell in the space. I don't know what the time frame was, but it wasn't possible for people to strategically coordinate the collapse of it. Something just popped into the, the those nations, you know, that they all abandoned with it. I don't know how many days it took, but it was very quick. So, so I, I, I'm like, and I'm thinking of like, what what is it that I see as I, you know, because I see these th threads or these. Uh, Potential. I never thought of them as like dates of potentiality, 
it's more like I'm just following my intuition and like pattern recognition mode. But it's like you start to see like, oh, ooh, like and you and it's an embodied experience. Yeah. And maybe that's a good place to begin to go is like what embodied the role of embodiment and, and what embodied practice might we take on in these times. But so but yeah, like I'm following that sense of like, oh, yeah, like actually there's there's something here what Benita's talking about and how that connects with the things that we talk about in the, you know, in the transformational coaching field and how that connects with what John Viveki is talking about. And if I would say that there certainly seems to be some themes around people expanding their bandwidth out of just pure abstract reasoning, rationality into, uh, you know, uh, an embodied experience, like where cognitive science comes in with the, the sense of an embodied self, um, but but like that yeah it seems to be that's part of a theme that's happening and even another part I would say is is like the hyper individuality like seem, people seem to be becoming recognizing the how Western that notion is and and the fallacies of it and that there's you know that communal self perhaps but like how how like in a lot of cultures they're grown up with um, a very different sense of identity, which is based more on relationship. And so these are some themes I see strongly, like people working really like in um, honoring the complexity and transformation rather than the complicated, you know? So this sensing unfolding, this meta competency of unfoldingness as opposed to, as opposed to structural close the gap type change that's been around in coaching and these are some like threads of like something that i really see coming in more into the transformational field so i'm not quite sure i'm going with this but i but i like just wanted it just came up as a reflection and um i guess i'm well i'll just see how you respond and i'm this idea of like embodied practice stays with me too and i'm like seeing the time and I'm, i'm like we could have three hours in this conversation we've got you know, another, about another 15 minutes. So. Yeah. yeah, so the embodiment piece, I think, is um, um, intuition is the embodied perception of deep patterns um, um, that are emerging. You know, to me, it's kind of like watching new stuff stars being born you know but if you're always just looking for the big dipper you just don't see anything but it's about you know it's like being the James Webb telescope and looking beyond into the space where new stars are being born and um that's what intuition is and it's 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 not an intellectual exercise in our environment, it requires discipline, though. So because um, if you're in the West and um, there is reason to believe that the West peaked in, in influence in the 1920s when after World War I, uh, three people, Winston Churchill, the Duke of someone and someone else, I forget, they, they pretty much laid out the 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 plan for the rest of the world and um western influence is declining so like what are the most 
surprising things is Eileen Gu wins three medals in freestyle skiing at the Olympics. She's an American born person who goes to Stanford and she lives in California and she won the medals for China. She chose to be on the represent the Chinese team. If that doesn't tell you that the influence of the West is declining, then you're just being blind. And so these are natural rhythms and the discipline is, okay, I'm in the West, the West is declining. What is the most graceful way to decline? And, okay, it's like, uh, it's like when the things turn over, the things that were not possible, the things you're talking about, to pay a mortgage, I have to do this, I have to do that, those things are dying. So there is a new potential that's going to emerge. And if we only concentrate on preserving the things that are declining, that the West is dying in global influence, it's not dead. It needs to compost itself. And the, the, let's say China and then India, the new influences, they're gonna go through their own cycle. And these cycles seem to be coming faster and faster. So it, it's like China was, is not an emerging power. It was way ahead of the West for centuries and then it declined and now it's emerged. So what has, one of the questions is what is the potential in this declining state? That's why I wrote in the dispatches, you know, the chrysalis, the in-between is hardly ever welcomed, but it has more potential. It has unique potential to be consciously aware that when a state is in decline, the potentials that were not possible when the old structures were dominant are rising. And your coaches, coaches rising. And that is the question of our time. And that, you know, there are many people who are not at the leading edge of this. There are people who have to fight the wars and 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 still make hedge bets on Wall Street, but that's their job to do. But people like your audience who are interested at the leading edge, that's the work of our time. What is the unique potential in the, the decline of the West? And so we could create something, some subjectivity that has never existed before because we can be self-conscious in the decline of its unique potential. And that I think is um, the work we, we need to do. Boom, that's, you know, high five to that. That's, uh, well, I can feel what that evokes inside of me, you know, which is, it's it's part, you know, what you're doing right now is, is um, helping me land inside of that sense of potentiality because I get this embodied sense of the 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 deep sense of service and 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 grace and joy that can come in in recognizing there's a decline but not you know um immediately going oh shit you know like uh we decline how can we respond to that how can we protect the order or 
you know, maintain power or, or whatever that is, but instead, and actually to see that, hey, the, the joy of the decline is that there is actually more potential here. You know, if you're, if you're not in decline, if you're at the peak of power, there's good, I imagine it's actually very difficult to, to experiment or more difficult and um, there, there's, yeah, it's just, more, it's just more difficult. I was going to, I lost what I was going to say there, but it's, um, it's, it's very inspiring to me to hold that as a, as a kind of frame and, and, and it softens me, you know, I can feel a kind of, uh, kind of like a, a, a peaceful acceptance and, 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 um, sense of grace and, and desire to, to serve that comes through. Yeah, and the potential of a new spring, you know, yeah. like kind of saying my organization is dying and then 10 years later saying, yeah, we used to be, we used to work together to make money. Now we stay together because we're friends and we're doing this service and it, and, you know, so, so yeah, uh, um, there's so much possibility and it, it's just to, to bring it to practical. There's a lot of aspirational energy in this, but, um, you know, I, I dropped my career abruptly. We had just bought the farm. It was, it, there was, and I would just, my income went literally down to nothing. We were both contractors riding on the uh, housing bubble and my husband's was a contractor also everybody around here is contractors there was nothing going on and i would just do the numbers like it was impossible to to stay alive but even the numbers turned out to be polluted by subjectivity and what happened was i realized that i had a certain subjectivity that um like if I didn't do this, then my horses would die. If I, I put all this effort into the tomatoes, but re, in reality, they grew better if you just let them alone on the ship pile. Everything that I ever learned was that tomatoes would, would mold on the ship pile, but because the ecosystem is healthy, that didn't happen. Like little by little, I just realized that I was living in an reality that 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 made everything more expensive, made my time. I didn't have any time that that and all those structures tra transformed in the process of just one at a time, you know, and like nobody can change go from you don't want to go from your life as you described it to like, I'm going to sit at home and see what happens, but you having this discussion. You change one little decision at a time and there's a domino effect. You get more and more space, more and more time. Having more time, you have time to relate to people in a way and you realize, oh, that's a really nice person. And then they take care of your kids because they have kids. And these, these, these potential relationships are already in the system. And that's something to be very uh, positive about. Yeah, yeah, it does feel that way. It feels like it's close or it's here, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's just not recognized or seen. So I was going to ask if you had a recommendation, but uh, I guess you're giving one now. But yeah, I wonder if there is a, a recommendation for people, like an inquiry, perhaps, 
that they could take away or um yeah i don't know i mean it'd be nice to have a you know a, con a conversation around this conversation which i think has been really really great there's a potential for that well then um let me suggest that we want to know how we can find out about your work as well you know i know you're up to some cool stuff and yeah so if, yeah i kept on alluding to my class um, I've, I've created a simple um, school, a simple campus that runs on a substack, simple substack. It's not a newsletter, it's a campus. Um, and um, it's called the pop-up school. So um, it's at Benita Roy at substack.com where you can search for the pop-up school. And um, we're coming, we have, uh, we're coming. And so th these are the kinds of uh, conversations we're having and we're building a kind of um, we're building new models to um, talk about things like this and it's a work in progress the fact that I could speak quote unquote so eloquently today is because I just ran the subjectivity uh, two months for that course and in this dialogue we get more clarity around uh, what a lot of us the shared intuition a lot of us have mm -hmm. Great. And that's Bonita Roy at substack.com. Yeah. Or I think you can Google the pop-up school. Yeah. I'm not sure how. Great. Yeah. Bonita, thanks so much. I feel like we, we have to do another conversation. There's like a lot of unanswered questions yeah. out of me, but um, yeah, I really appreciate you being willing to play in this space and speak. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing really unique work and you have, um, yeah, it's lovely talking to you. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com, put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time. Mm -hmm.